0: Pastor Thomas and Thornton today, and I'm glad to be with you as we continue our series called This We Believe. Has it been helpful for you? Good. I hope so. Me too. Our aim in this series is that we would have confidence in what we as Christians believe about certain important topics. We've talked about what do we believe about God, who he is, what is he like, how has he revealed himself to us? About the Bible. What is it? Why do we read it? What does it contain? Why is it important? Why do we open it every week when we're together as a church? Who is Jesus? The Son of God. Sent from heaven to earth to save us and redeem us and restore our relationship with our Father who is in heaven. We've talked about the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it would be better that I would leave and give you the Helper who will be with you and who will indwell you. For the last few weeks, we've been talking about who we are as humans. The problems we all face as sinners who are estranged from God. But the reality that, through Jesus, we have been restored in our relationship to Him. And today, the church. If you search up on the internet for articles about the church in America, the news is not good. You'll find headlines dominated by words like crisis and decline. Questions all over like, will the church survive? And to be clear, there are many problems that are confronting the church today. Abuse, scandal, Cultural accommodation, a lack of commitment in an increasing number of churches to the authority of the scriptures. And I know that many of you have experienced pain because of your part in an unhealthy church experience. And for that, I'm very sorry. But Even sort of in spite of those challenges and the apparent problems that exist in the church in our world today, I have confidence in the church. I don't think it's coming to an end. Why would I believe that? The perspective I think that the world has on the church is often built on some misunderstandings about it. And today, my hope is that we can clarify what exactly it is that we believe about the church. So, as we get started, here are four popular misconceptions I see about the church. The first is one maybe you've thought about in your life that the church is physical, it's mostly buildings. I understand why that happens. You know, we go to church, and it's a place, and there's a location, and we meet in this architectural marvel every week. So often when people think about the church, they think primarily of something physical, a location, a place, and what happens to buildings? Buildings crumble. They fall apart. They have their end. And so I think one of the reasons why people don't have a lot of confidence about the church is because they think of it as a physical entity. The second misconception I hear people talk about when they talk about the church is that the church is organizational. It's like a bureaucracy. There's a lot of structure and hierarchy I think a lot of this comes from the Catholic Church, which is widely known in the world. It has a pope, and then there are bishops, and there are priests, and it's very complex and organized and structured. And so it looks like, and I think even many evangelical churches kind of think about themselves, maybe predominantly as an organization that has leaders, and we model ourselves after the business world and other organizations that are well-run. So we can be confused when we think of the church as primarily organizational. Of course, in our day, the world at large, especially in the United States, sees the church as political. Would you agree? And that the church is simply comprised of a people who have a shared ideology, a voting block that must be leveraged. So many people, especially those who are outside the church, think of the church as a political organization, especially the evangelical church today. And there are numerous problems with that. The other way I think people think of the church is that the church is traditional. It's just kind of something that existed in the olden days and so it will come to its end. Just like every old school tradition, it will just eventually fade into obscurity. But my friends, the church is not primarily physical. It is not only organizational, although there is a structure to the church. Its purpose is decidedly not political. And it's not to be thought of as simply traditional. The reason why we can have confidence about the church is because of this. The church is none of these things, but rather it is eternal. The church will last forever. Now, why do we believe that? Do you have a Bible? Open with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It's one of four biographies about the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. He was an eyewitness of the events that he's going to describe in chapter 16 that we look at today together. And let me set the scene for what's happening. Jesus is gathered with his disciples, his 12 closest followers and friends. There's been momentum building in Jesus' ministry. He's been traveling around, healing people, preaching. The crowds have been growing significantly. Jesus has gone viral. And as he gathers with his followers, he says to them, essentially, what's the word on the street about me? What are you hearing people say about me? Who do the people think that I am? And the disciples give a few different answers. They say, well, Jesus, many people think you're a prophet who has been reincarnated. Maybe Elijah. Perhaps another Old Testament prophet like Jeremiah. Some think you're John the Baptist. You both have similarly successful preaching ministries. They give several different answers. About who the crowds think Jesus is. And then he asks this question. Really, it's the most important question that's ever been asked. He looks at them and says, but who do you guys say that I am? Not the crowd, not the people out there in the world, but who do each of you say that I am? I've often wondered what that moment was like. Did they all look around awkwardly like, I don't want to say anything? my guess is they had been talking about it together for quite some time, trying to figure out who exactly Jesus was and had probably come to a consensus together. Either way, Peter, the text calls him Simon, was often the spokesperson for the other disciples and sometimes spoke out of turn. But in this moment, he speaks on behalf of each of them. And gives a clear description of who Jesus is. In verse 16, it says, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then verse 18. And I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, as God's chosen, promised Messiah, the one who would come and save God's people. And he attributes to Jesus divinity when he makes this statement. He says, you are the, not a, the son of the living God. It's remarkable when you understand the location in which this confession occurs. It's in a northern part of modern day Israel, what we would call the Golan Heights, almost in Syria, in a region known as Caesarea Philippi. And this region in Jesus' day was uh, was noted for its worship of the pagan god Pan, the little guy who dances around with the flute, you know. And previously, it had been known as a place that worshipped the pagan god Baal. It was an Old Testament figure. And so here in the context of a place that historically has worshipped pagan gods, Peter says, You are the one and only son of the living God. And Jesus blesses him for making this confession and says, this is not something that has been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father who is in heaven. And then there's a little play on words. You are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. Now there's been some confusion about what exactly this means, and different people have been interpreted it in many different ways. We don't have time to go into all the nuance of that. Suffice it to say, what I think Jesus is trying to affirm here is that Jesus will build His church on the foundation of this confession that He is the Son of God. And that salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved than the name of Jesus. And Jesus says, on this rock, on this confession, Peter, I will build my church. So why do we believe that the church will last forever? Because Jesus builds the church. It's fascinating that Jesus says, I will build my church. This is only one of two times when Jesus even uses the word church in the Gospels. Right here in Matthew chapter 16 and two chapters later in Matthew 18. That's the only time Jesus talks about it. And when you think about it, the men that he is speaking to right now are the ones who will be instrumental in the growth of the early church. Peter is one of the most important leaders. John is there. One of the guys who's going to be really instrumental. Paul isn't even present with them yet. But Jesus says, I will build my church. The way we learn about the church is through the New Testament letters that are written by many of these men. But Jesus says, I will build my church. It's my work. The word that Matthew uses here, again, he was an eyewitness, to describe the church is the Greek word ekklesia, which does not mean a building, which doesn't mean an organization, but which means people who are set apart called out a unique group of people who have a purpose and Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against this people group that I will call out gates are a defense mechanism they keep people out, they keep people in and Jesus says as I build my church, the gates of hell symbolic for death, will not keep my church out. The church will overcome those gates and people will be saved by Jesus through the work of the church. Here is how our statement of faith describes this. We believe that the true church comprises all who have been justified Will you read this next, the rest of the sentence with me? By God's grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how Jesus builds his church. Is that people would come to faith in Jesus. Not because of anything they've done. Not because of something that they deserve. But by the grace of God. Through faith alone, in Christ alone. People will be rescued from death. And restored in their relationship to God, And they will be, to use the language of our statement, justified in this way. Justification is a legal term. We were once estranged from God because of our sin. But because of the work of Christ, because of what he accomplished on the cross, because he died the death that we deserved to live, and was raised to new life by his Father, we are justified. Our sins have been forgiven. Our slates have been wiped clean. And we can confidently stand in the presence of God because of the atoning work of Christ. So what's our calling as His people? Jesus builds the church. How do we relate to Him? Well, first, we believe in Him. We belong to Him. We are a part of His family. When we lead membership class here at Calvary, and and by the way, if you've been at Calvary for a long time and are not yet a member or you're new to Calvary and would like to learn more, we would love to have you join us at an upcoming membership class. But when we walk through what it means to be a member at Calvary, we tell everybody, the most important thing is that you are a member of God's family first, not a local church. You can't be a member of a local church if you are not a part of God's family If you have not been justified by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. So I would ask you, do you belong to Jesus? Have you, similar to Peter, confessed that he is the Son of God? Have you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins? To restore your relationship with your Father who is in heaven? to free you from the weight and burden of sin and allow you to confidently be a part of the family of God. If you haven't yet, I would invite you to do that right now in this moment and become a part of God's eternal family. Jesus builds His church. We belong to Him. A British pastor named George Morgan, who ministered in London in the late 1800s and early 1900s, said this, The church of God, apart from the person of Christ, is a useless structure. However ornate it may be in its organization, however perfect in all its arrangements, however rich and increased with goods, if the church is not revealing the person of Jesus, lifting him to the height where all men and women can see him, then the church is a sham, a blasphemy, and a fraud. And the sooner the world is rid of it, the better. Jesus builds his church. Let's look at another important early church leader and his perspective on the church, this time the Apostle Paul. So turn right in your Bible with me to Colossians chapter 1. We've looked at this several times during our series, particularly as we've looked at the person of Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 has one of the most incredible descriptions of who Jesus is in all of his glory. And it describes his position in the church. In verse 18... When it says, "And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church; he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent." Jesus is the head of the body of the church. It's one of many metaphors in the New Testament used to describe the church—a church family, a flock of God. The bride of Christ. The body of Christ is a helpful metaphor because it helps us understand how we are interconnected to one another. We are all part of this living organism of which Jesus Christ is the head, the leader. He is preeminent, most important. This is another reason for confidence that the church will last forever. Because Jesus leads the church. He is in charge of it. He's the leader of it. And so we look to him. That's why it's a part of our mission statement that we are building Christ-centered communities of people who are fully devoted to loving God and loving others. Because Jesus must always be central in the life of our church. This is not the pastor's church. This is not the elders' church. This is not the congregation's church. Whose church is it? Jesus' church. And I'm thankful that for nearly 135 years, Calvary Bible Church in Boulder, Colorado has looked to Jesus for leadership. We've submitted to his authority, we've followed his teaching, and opened his word together. And this is what must continue to define our church in our day today, that we are centered around Jesus. Because he is the leader of the church and of our church. He must always be central. This is how our statement describes it. That the people who make up God's church are united by the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ of which he is the head So when we ask ourselves a common question, I do it too, what do you think about church today? <laughs> it's less important that we liked it. And more important that Jesus was glorified as we gathered. That his word was proclaimed, that his gospel was preached. That his people were cared for. That he was followed. That's what matters. Because Jesus leads the church. So we must continue to look to Jesus as he leads us. And that is what the church in the world needs more than anything. To remember the authority of Jesus Christ in the church. He's building it. He leads it. To open his word to be guided and shaped by it more than what's happening in our culture and in our world. One of the last things that Jesus said to his disciples before he returned to heaven was that we would go into all the world and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That is the work of the church to teach those disciples who have been brought into God's eternal family all that Jesus has commanded and to help one another obey him through the work of the Holy Spirit and by his strength and his help so that we might become more and more like him. He's our leader. He leads the church. Dallas Willard, who was a philosophy professor at USC in Los Angeles and wrote a number of books about following Jesus, shortly before he died, was interviewed. And one of the final questions of the interview was this pointed one. When you look at how off track the church is, do you ever just throw up your hands in despair? Willard smiled and said, Never. And the interviewer said, but how can you not? He answered, because I know that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And he knows what he's doing. We're similarly confident about the church. Because Jesus builds it. And he leads it. And now let's look at another way the Apostle Paul describes the church in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 is one of Paul's extended teachings on marriage. Here on the earth between a man and a woman. But the metaphor he sort of helps underscore the importance of marriage, the metaphor he uses is actually Jesus and the church. And the relationship between Jesus and his bride. One of the ways that Paul describes the church. And he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Husbands, your calling is to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And here's what he did. He did that so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So here's the third reason why we have confidence in the church. Jesus loves the church. He loves it. He gave himself up for her. For the church. He died for his church. And one day, he will present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, so that she might be holy. The church is eternal, it will last forever. Because one day, Jesus will present the church to himself, and it will be perfect. It won't have all the problems that it faces today. It will be rid of the sin and the trouble and the pain and the sorrow. It will be perfect and holy. That's Jesus' work. And he loves the church. I know the church has problems. And I hear people sometimes say, Boy, I really love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. I've heard it described this way. I can't imagine if one of you came to me and said, John, I love you. You're one of my best friends in the whole world. I'm committed to you, I'm grateful for you, I love you. But I really can't stand your wife. I'm not sure I would think that you really loved me. (laughs) I don't know that that's possible. And again, I know the church has caused pain in many of your lives, and I don't mean to minimize that. But Jesus loves the church. And we're called to love the church too. Jesus loves the church in spite of its brokenness, in spite of its problems, and its pains, and its difficulties. And we're called to love the church too. It will last forever. And Jesus never wants us to forget that he loves the church. So our statement says this, that the Lord Jesus mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. Now what does that have to do with Jesus loving the church? Baptism is a visible expression of what each of us has experienced. When we baptize people, we immerse them in water, and we say, you, are, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, and now you have been made new, alive in Jesus Christ. It's a picture of what each of us experienced when we placed our faith and trust in Christ. That we turned away from a life of sin and turned to Jesus to follow him. And we are a new creation. And as we get to experience and witness baptisms in our church together, it should encourage us Remind us of the work that Jesus did for us that we have been made new because he loved us. And that's why Jesus commanded that we be baptized. And that we do so with other people around. It's not an individual experience. Other believers participate in baptism so that it's a visible expression of the gospel. And what is the gospel but the love of Christ for us? And communion which we celebrate together about once a month here at Calvary. It's a meal that we share. We eat some bread and, and drink a cup. And as we do so, we remember the words of the Lord Jesus, who said, as often as you are together, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body which I give to you. This cup is the cup of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus says, do this often, so that you remember me. I think he wants us most of all to remember his love for us when we experience communion. Remember that when he hung on a cross, he did it for us. He took our place, and he demonstrated his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, in the old days, when men would go off to war, they would leave a picture of themselves for their wives or fiancé. Why would they do that? So that their wives might remember them until they came back from war. And why did Jesus institute communion for us? So that we would remember his love for us until he returns. That's why we eat that meal together. And as our statement says, we we pray that it would nourish us. These ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. They're meant to be a help to us. He loves you. Now not only are we called to love the church at large, we're called to love each other. To care for one another to bear each other's burdens, pray for one another, minister to one another. We obviously have a tangible example of ways we might do that in the days ahead. And there are so many others. And there are so many ways that you love each other in our church. And I've experienced that love and so many of us have experienced the love for one another that is to mark the church and define it and make it unlike any other organization in the world. By this will men know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another, Jesus said. That's our calling today. Jesus loves the church and we love one another. So the church is eternal, because Jesus builds it and leads it, and he loves it. We started today with Peter's confession of Christ. Let's end by looking at Peter's conviction about the church. In one of the letters that he wrote, where he describes the church, he describes you in this way. He says, but you, the people of God. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I'm not sure there's a better definition of who the church is than this one. All of us who have been saved by Jesus were at one time in darkness, consumed by sin, estranged from our Father. And Jesus stepped in and called us out of that darkness into His marvelous light where we are free from that. Free from the guilt that, is, that we're plagued by because of sin. Confident to be in the family of God. And this is our calling. That here in the city of Boulder is Calvary Bible Church that we would find people who are in darkness and lovingly call them into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. So that they might be a part of this eternal family that Jesus is building that they might submit to His authority, that they might experience His love, perhaps for the first time, and be a part of the church, this holy nation, this unique people that God has called out of darkness and into light. Are you a part of the church? If you aren't, today's the day to join with us Join with countless other people who have followed Jesus, trusted Him, believed on Him, confessed their sins to Him, and been rescued and reconciled and renewed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we look to you. We look to you for help, for salvation, for hope, and for leadership in our church. We affirm together this is your church. And we're thankful to be a part of it. We pray for your continued leading, and guidance and wisdom. We pray for our elders. We pray, God, as we endeavor to follow you, that you would give us all that we need. That by the work of your Spirit, you would center our hearts on Jesus. That you would give us wisdom as we open your word. That you'd give us compassion as we care for those in our community. That you would enable us to minister to one another as if Jesus himself is ministering to us. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for what you have done for us and that because of it, we will live with you forever. May you be praised. In your name we ask all of this.